With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You're listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by the great Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. Hi, Dan. What up, Leslie? Not a whole hell of a lot, to be honest. It's kind of a, a, a nice week here. Phew, I, I am vaguely envious, I suppose. I'm kind of in the middle of a swamp of uh, documentary reviews timed to this year's virtual Sundance, which, as of the time we're recording this on Thursday, premieres tonight. So get ready if if you read me for some documentary reviews. Wee Wee Well, before we get into that, let's just get into that this is our 152nd episode, and I just wanted to thank everybody for the wonderful feedback that we got to last week's double dose of TV's Top 5, including our very first showrunner spotlight standalone episode where we interviewed the Yellow Jackets creators all about the season one finale and what's next. Um, I love that show. I love talking about that show and I love listening to what Ashley and Bart, the creators and co-show runners have to say about it. So if you have if you missed it and you're just catching up to Yellow Jackets, it's a fun one. It is, as we remind you again, very, very spoilery. But if you've been waiting or still catching up on on Yellow Jackets, definitely well worth checking out. And our landmark 150th episode was no slouch either, Dan. We had James Gunn talking all about Peacemaker and the differences between working for Marvel and DC. He was a great interview, too. We're, we're kind of on a roll here, Dan. They're all good dogs, Leslie. They're all good dogs. And speaking of, this week we've got a terrific interview with Downton Abbey creator Julian Fellows about his new HBO show, The Gilded Age. The review embargo was up on this a few hours ago, Dan, and it seems like it's a raves across the board. You'll be able to hear my opinions of it after our extra good chat with Julian. Well, before we get into all of that, we're going to start off with headlines. Number one. Leading off the week's top headlines, Amazon's highly anticipated The Lord of the Rings series has received its formal title. It will be called Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. Dan, it's kind of got a ring to it, no? Sorry, I couldn't resist there. <sighs> Well, I read the new logline and and it's got something to do with someone named named Sauron, who even though I've seen all of the Peter Jackson movies, I can't recall who the hell that is. Oh, he's he's important. It's a very, very generic title. I kind of wonder what the process was. It kind of reeks of uh, those strange corners of Las Vegas where people are doing tests for network pilots and that they were given three or four different titles and they went with the one that kind of smelled like Lord of the Rings without necessarily using any actual specifics or usable demonstrations of what the show is. So 
Thanks, Las Vegas test marketers. Anyway, enough of the rings of power. Uh, <laughs> Apple has secured the rights to adapt Pedro Almodovar's Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown as a TV series with Jean the Virgin grad Gina Rodriguez set to star. Intriguing. The streamer has also greenlit a new series set in the Godzilla Monsterverse from Outcast showrunner Chris Black. I just like that we're calling it Monsterverse and that Apple is calling it Monsterverse, Dan. I just love that there are things that can be set in it. It's all it's all a little bit silly, but yay, Godzilla TV show. Why not? Yeah, franchise, franchise, franchise is the subtext there. In other news, Andy Cohen will continue to watch what happens live as his Bravo series has been extended through 2023. In other renewals, Paramount Plus has solidified the future of its Star Trek franchise, handing out pickups for Star Trek Strange New Worlds before its premiere, another season for Star Trek Discovery, and for the animated Star Trek Lower Decks, as all three shows will be coming back on the streamer. In casting, F. Murray Abraham, Adam DeMarco, Tom Hollander, and Healy Lou Richardson have joined Aubrey Plaza and Michael Imperioli in season two of HBO's The White Lotus. And Josh Jackson will star opposite Lizzie Kaplan in the Fatal Attraction update adaptation, whatever the heck it is, at Paramount+. Plus. Elsewhere, CBS is finally bringing Bull to a close with the troubled Michael Weatherly drama ending with his current sixth season. Considering all the behind-the-scenes drama, the sexual harassment payout to Eliza Dushku, the various showrunner and actor firings, plus Steven Spielberg's Amblin dropping out as a producer, it's honestly a wonder that it lasted this long, Dan. You say wonder, I say embarrassment to CBS, but tomato, tomato. <laughs> yeah, in other cancellations, NBC has axed Ellen's Game of Games with the news coming as DeGeneres is nearing the end of her troubled syndicated show, so... Yeah, no surprise there. I'm guessing she's going to take some time off from any kind of uh, on-screen commitment. On the animation front, King of the Hill is inching closer to a return as creators Mike Judge and Greg Daniels have opened up an animation company, which you would have read about in a great exclusive from THR's Leslie Goldberg. And they've already got shows in development at both Freeform and Netflix. And by in development, picked up to series. Same thing. Yeah. Um, in news that broke from late last week, that is definitely worth acknowledging here. Tim Allen will star in a Santa Claus TV series for Disney Plus, and Timothy Oliphant will step back into his justified role for a new limited series at FX. One of those two pieces of news is very exciting for me. Take a guess which one. What can I say? I'm a sucker for the Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> Wrapping up headlines, Joss Whedon. <sighs> Finally responded to allegations from Justice League stars Ray Fisher and Gal Gadot with a story in New York Magazine that effectively saw the Buffy creator take out a shovel and spend roughly 9,000 words digging his hole deeper and deeper and deeper. I, I don't know what to say about this that we haven't already said back when he was uh, bumped out of his show running responsibilities and whatnot at the Nevers on HBO. Hey, remember when the Nevers at HBO was a TV show? I thought I would mention that. I don't remember don't the last time I... Don't they still have the second half of that show? They do. They do. I'm just trying yeah. to think of the last time I heard a human being mention the name of that show. Uh, there, it's there's a, a pun in there somewhere, Dan. I, Nevers would be apparently the answer. Uh, but yeah, this is this has become a... No, this has not become a sad story. This was a sad story, and it was a bad story, and nothing that was in this particular very, very, very long and 
you know, probably, probably unnecessarily candid, but not necessarily considered uh, feature. Yeah, nothing, nothing in it was good. I can hardly imagine anybody having read that and come away feeling better about any of the circumstances if they felt bad about them before. So we yeah, there's a great uh, critics piece that our friend over at Variety wrote this week about being a diehard Buffy fan and, and how she how she feels being conflicted for with a show that was so beloved and so important to her, created by someone who has turned into well what Joss has turned into, and I think she, you know Caroline said it said it best. So uh, you can look for that over on our partner website Variety.com. And with headlines out of the way, here comes our second topic of the week. Number two. Up second this week, YouTube is officially out of the originals business with lots of breaking news on both the executive and programming levels. So I would say tell the kids what we learned this week about YouTube, but the kids already know about YouTube. They're already hip to it and all of its YouTubing and whatnot. But tell the other people what came down this week. Well, news broke this week that Suzanne Daniels, the former WB Network, Lifetime and MTV chief who spent the past six years working as head of originals for YouTube, stepped down. YouTube's chief business officer tweeted a lengthy memo to creators with business at, at YouTube noting that the originals division will be no more. And instead, YouTube will focus exclusively on funding programs that are part of its Black Voices and YouTube Kids funds. More interestingly, the Google Back streamer will continue to work with its YouTube partner program for ad revenue sharing uh, from creator posted original. So what this basically means is any show that was at YouTube and look, they were out of scripted years ago, right? Remember when Cobra Kai hit the open market, Netflix wanted after a bidding war, and then it became a mega hit for them. They had a couple other originals land elsewhere. Well, that's getting out of scripted is the first step. Getting out of unscripted is basically the rest. So what they're saying is we're not going to be spending money on our original content. We're instead going to team with the creators who are using our platform to generate money. We're not going to put up money. We're going to partner with them, let them do all the work, and we're going to help them market and monetize it. And we're going to take a cut. So basically, it's less of a financial investment for YouTube, more of a financial windfall for them. So in terms of what to expect from their current shows, anything that I think had a current deal that was actively in production, I'm, I would imagine is going to continue to go on. Anything that was kind of left in limbo, farewell. So like you said, Suzanne Daniels had a, a long resume of uh, programming and network experience. Is is this as simple as given the direction that YouTube is going, they don't need a Suzanne Daniels because they've got a bunch of people on their computers making videos? That's basically it. Yeah. I mean, look, she's a, an, a legendary executive. You know, she is a respected exec who championed shows like Buffy, Gilmore Girls. She, she I mentioned she developed Cobra Kai. She is a great executive available, so it'll be. I'll be very curious to see where she lands. She's done broadcast. She's done cable. She's done, you know, just so much in in, in her historic career. Um, I've had the pleasure of meeting her and, and interviewing her a few times over my, during my career. I always walk away from those interviews feeling like I learned something, and that is a good thing to come when you have when you spend any time with an exec. Um, there's other execs that kind of just stick to their talking points and try not to rock the boat and they don't want to say anything that makes a headline. That's fine. You know, it's the Disney way. So you see a lot of execs who are at Disney kind of taking that safe approach because they're mandated to. 
Daniels is not one of those people. So I'm very curious to see where she ends up, especially in, you know, looking at what our landscape looks like today in terms of the streaming revolution. There's a lot of people who could use someone like her, maybe Roku. That would be a good fit, I think, considering she's got incredible um, relationships with talent, both on camera and behind behind the scenes. Um, But yeah. And, you know, the other thing that I thought was interesting, too, is, you know, um, her former deputy, Dustin Davis, is now working with uh, her husband, Greg Daniels, and Mike Judge at their newly launched animation company. And that was an introduction that Suzanne made to her husband. So uh, some interesting keeping it in the family there. Who knows if she'll wind up working for Bandera, the, the Judge and Daniels animation company. That feels like it would be really cool to see them all work in the family, but it feels like she could go on to do bigger and better things. So We'll have to wait and see where she winds up, but I'm very curious to see where she does. Number three. Up next, FX has issued its annual Peak TV update. And this is the thing that FX sends around each year and and makes us remember that there's entirely too much TV and we watch entirely too much of it. And it also gives us our talking points for the next uh, 12 months. So what did this year's chart tell us, Leslie? Well, the 2021 tally came in at 559 shows. It's another record. It's up 13% from 2020 when there were 493. 2020, of course, it's worth noting, marked the very first time that the numbers, the annual number of scripted live action originals, English language scripted live action originals went down since FX began charting the number of of shows in the works. And the down, you know, the downturn in 2020, obviously, I'm sure brought on partially by the pandemic and the production difficulties that that a lot of people faced as well as the un, the wave of unrenewals, the shows that were greenlit for second seasons that a lot of places reversed course on for whatever reason, whether it was financial or, or otherwise. But looking more at the 2021 numbers, the jump is a it's the 63 show gain. It's the most significant gain since FX started doing this. The total is also more than double from a decade ago. So the other interesting th- thing that I was looking at, and, and it's also worth noting here that FX stopped trying to put these into buckets between broadcast cable and streaming, because let's face it, all roads point back to streaming. It doesn't matter where someone watches the show because it's all going to be in the same ecosystem in a few years anyway. So the the thing that, that I find interesting is that the difference between, if you remove the 2020 count, right, the difference between 2019, the pre-pandemic, and 2021's tally is more consistent with the growth trends. That's up 5%. So the other thing that, you know, it, it's it's really interesting to see you know, look, you and I feel the the pinch of peak TV. We're constantly getting pitch pitches for showrunners for the show. We're getting pitched. I'm getting pitched development stuff and companies are launching left and right. And it's like you can't keep track. So you have to basically curate where you think the news value is. Right. And it's just, you know, it, it, it just the number continues to be mind boggling. Five hundred and fifty nine, Dan. It is kind of astonishing. And, you know, this comes <laughs> This comes six years after the legendary, famous, however you want to put it, uh, John Langrath press tour panel where he got up and talked about peak TV as a concept. And he talked about an expanding universe, but he also at the time suggested that it was not going to go on forever. (laughs) He suggested that at a certain point there was going to be a plateau and then a decline. And he subsequently had to admit that clearly that has not come to pass. But it's kind of funny because that summer when he said that I was between 
two jobs. And I was writing a, a feature for the New York Times about this and about the phenomenon of whether at some point things would start to recede. And it's hilarious because the people I interviewed for that feature included a lot of executives at networks who were getting into the scripted space. I talked to the president of WGN. I talked to the president of El Rey, and they were talking about how committed they were to the scripted space. Well, WGN does not do scripted originals anymore. I am not 100% sure if El Rey exists anymore. So we just did a segment on YouTube and how YouTube was doing a lot of scripted and then retreated. Well, that means that at the same time right now, we're dealing with both some networks retreating, receding, actually going backwards, but then somehow the numbers keep going up. Streaming, baby, streaming. It it, it is just a remarkable snapshot because maybe there were some places at which peak TV was actually the peak, but meanwhile, across an entire ecosystem that we cover, it keeps going up and I feel as if probably with each year it becomes harder and harder for us to watch everything obviously and you know you don't have to watch everything I can't watch everything but sometimes I'd still try to and yeah you know top 10 season was only a month ago and there were lots of shows on people's top 10s that I watched zero seconds of because either I hadn't heard of them, several of the critics for the New York Times do a spectacular job of selecting utterly random shows that exist from a different world, which I love, by the way. That's not an insult. There's a reason why I put a show like AMC Plus's Anna on my list. It's because it's a great show and casting light into a darkness is sometimes more useful than casting light into a fully lit room, like telling people succession is good. You haven't really accomplished all that much. They probably know that telling people a weird pandemic drama on AMC plus exists or telling people AMC plus exists (laughs) is, is a different process. But yeah, I appreciate FX doing this on an annual basis because a, I need to have the, the, the ammunition to say 559 scripted shows last year when I get asked to review something absurd that I would never under any circumstance review or when I get asked why I didn't do anything fun with my weekend. (laughs) Or why I say no to a story because there simply is too much TV, which when Landgraf said that at TCA all those years ago, I still take that link and send it to publicists when they complain to me that we're not covering something. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and, and bemoan how hard our jobs are. I think everyone has, you know, their own challenges in their no matter what their fields are. But, you know, keep in mind that this number th- is for live action scripted shows for adults across broadcast cable and streaming. It tallies only English language originals. So things like Squid Game and Money Heist are not counted, nor are originals on Spanish language platforms. Kids and Animated Fair also doesn't count, nor do the soaps. And of course, there's still... F- thousands of reality and documentary series out there. So this is just one number, one faction of our industry that we're talking about here. So look, there's a lot of stuff out there. You know, the the best thing that you can do is find a critic that you like, stick with them, hope, you know, hope that their taste aligns with yours, follow reporters that you're interested in following and curate what you, what you like. Listen to the people who are recommending. Watch Twitter. You know, it's like watch some of these trailers. You know, it's like I'm I'm covering stuff that like I've written about and I see a trailer come out. I'm like, what is that again? And it's like I wrote about it two years ago. And you're just like, Jesus, you know, like I I have a document that I that I keep. It's a, a list of every scripted show that gets picked up along with every returning show. 
So once a show gets announced, it goes on my grid. Once it gets canceled, it gets a strike through. And that list is now 75 pages long. And I've been keeping that almost since I started as a reporter. It's absurd. Like it, it, there's just it, it, you can't keep up anymore. That That's the bottom line here. You, you can't keep up. But so now you at least have the number. Next time you're at a cocktail party and and some jackass says to you, oh, I don't watch TV or oh, there's nothing on TV or oh, TV is all reality crap. The number is 559 scripted shows that premiered in 2021. And as Leslie just said, that doesn't include foreign language. It doesn't include reality. It doesn't include documentary. It doesn't include kids. It doesn't include animation. 559 scripted programs. Yeah. Well, let's move on. Up next, it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Number four. Our guest this week is Julian Fellows, creator of HBO's new drama, The Gilded Age. Fellows previously created PBS's beloved Downton Abbey, for which he received a slew of writing and drama series Emmys, and won a pair in 2011 when the series was classified as a miniseries. A former actor, Fellows won an Oscar for the screenplay for Gosford Park, roughly 20 years ago, and his other credits include Netflix's The English Game and Epix's Belgravia. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We appreciate it. No, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for asking me. So, okay, we're going to go back to the very beginning here because this series began development a decade ago when it was set up at NBC. And I guess the first question is the show that's launching on HBO this weekend. How similar is it to the original concept that you were working on at NBC a decade ago? Oh, well, no, it is the same show. I mean, uh, I was sort of developing it. I got interested in the whole period of the Gilded Age. Uh, and I was working with Bob Greenblatt, who at that time was at NBC. Uh, and uh, he eventually moved from NBC to HBO. Uh, and we went with him. So it wasn't that it was a different show when it went to HBO. It was the same show with the same producer, the same father. Uh, and then, of course, uh, he left HBO. But by then, we, you know, the whole thing had been developed and, and we were on the edge of 
Phil, well, I think we were filming. Uh, and so, no, it was the same idea. I mean, uh, they chose to announce it uh, sort of years before I was free to actually write it. Uh, but, you know, that was their decision. There wasn't much I could say to influence them about that. Uh, and, and so uh, it was sort of sold as if it was coming next Thursday when I knew there wasn't a single script or a costume or a location, nothing had been done. So, uh, you know, uh, the slowness. Then, of course, we had this last drama of COVID where, you know, we finally got to New York. We were in pre-production. The scripts were written. Everything was going. And then I was sitting there at my desk in the offices one afternoon, and suddenly a man ran in and said, that's it, we're shutting down. You're on the dawn flight to London. Uh, and, and, you know, we were, I forget now, but about 10 days from filming. Uh, and so that was a bit of a setback. And as I'm sure you know, a lot of shows and films died at that moment because they were never revived. And, and that was our fear. Well, anyway, it was my fear. Uh, and, um, and I went back thinking, oh, God. But happily, uh, by then, HBO was pretty far in, uh, and we built these enormous sets, and we had costumes coming out of our ears, and the whole thing had sort of moved on. We got the cast and everything, and they decided that we should pick up and go forward as soon as we could. Then, of course, we had the whole drama of COVID filming which has an etiquette to rival Versailles. And you have bracelets and masks and visors and tests galore. And, and you, you have one colored bracelet to show you can go on the set and another color to show that you're allowed to talk to the actors. I can't tell you what it was like. But anyway, once again, we rose to that. I mean, we were sort of under a kind of house arrest, because every night I would be taken back to my hotel in New York, uh, and there my lady-in-waiting would sort of place me and go off and fetch a kind of a takeaway dinner, and I would eat it all by myself, usually watching a Lana Turner black-and-white movie, and go to bed. That was my night routine, which wasn't my normal New York life. By the end, I started slightly to cheat and have lunch with people. But I was pretty disciplined, and absolutely nobody was allowed on the set. I mean, there was no point in my wife coming out with me or any of that. Nobody got onto the set. Uh, and we had a few frights, you know. We had uh, it cropping up among the, uh, you know, the camera crew or the wardrobe or very frighteningly makeup. But, and catering, that was the most scary of all. But uh, we never did lose a member of the cast. So we were able to keep moving forward the whole time. You know, one of the things that I'm interested in, is, you know, as someone who covers development and, ha and has written about the Gilded Age for a decade now, you know, when it was, I remember covering it originally and it was presented as your first U.S. original show. 
And you really have gotten the full experience, not only with the, the early announcement of development and series ordered, and then, of course, the you know moving platforms, not only from a broadcast network, but moving to a completely separate conglomerate with, with WarnerMedia's HBO. And I'm curious, from a larger standpoint, how did the development process compare to your experience with, with other originals, you know, including Downton Abbey? Well, the process over here is quite different. I mean, there's no question about that. Downton Abbey was really made by three people, uh, Liz Truebridge, Garrett Neem, and me. Uh, and, and we would work on the scripts until we three were happy with them. And only then did ITV get a look. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, after that, masterpiece. But even then, uh, we didn't really pay much, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but we didn't pay much attention to their notes. We, you know, we three made the show we wanted to make. And, and so it was very much in a way a cottage industry. But of course, the advantage of that is you have a very distinct voice because there's so few people contributing to it. And the difficulty in America, uh, which I love, you know, but the difficulty is that 180,000 people are empowered to give notes on your show. And your struggle as a writer is to stop it becoming generalized, to stop it becoming a kind of gray color. And one of the things... I, I'm very lucky, actually, because during Downton, I got to know Matthew Weiner a bit, who was doing Mad Men, and he was running a whole writing room, and yet Mad Men had a very, very distinctive style that it never lost during all its uh, different series. And that was Matthew working on it and keeping that style distinct. And, and I remember being very impressed with that. And, and it came back to me during this because I thought that's what we must strive for is to keep the style of the show. You know, despite the fact that anyone who delivers milk to the studio has got the right to send you a hundred pages of notes. Uh, I, despite that, to work to keep the style and I, I hope we've done it. I mean, of course, it's not up to me to say whether we have done it. It's much more up to you when, when you see it. But that was what I was really uh, working for and, and conscious of trying to preserve, really. You know, and, and with that entire process, I'm curious, you know, you obviously mentioned Bob Greenblatt, who we talk about on this show a lot in, in terms of the move to Warner Media and what happened there. But, you know, he's been known to champion such projects. Like when he moved from Showtime, he brought Smash with him to NBC. And obviously Gilded Age was the same thing. But I'm curious, what were the conversations that led to the show's move to premium cable to begin with? Was this a kind of a question of NBC can't afford the budget on a show like this? Was it purely financial or was there something more? Well, you know, the writer is the last to know. He's like the husband. He, he doesn't get the information until everyone else does. But um, I, I wouldn't really presume to say, I mean, I think if I'm honest, which of course is dangerous to be on these shows, uh, I, I would say 
that Bob Greenblatt was the one who loved the show. And uh, Perlina, who took it over, was being asked to spend an enormous proportion of her budget on a show she hadn't chosen. And, and uh, it wasn't her baby. Uh, she's an extremely nice uh, woman and a very good producer, but I think that was an unreasonable ask. And it seemed to me more reasonable that Bob should take the show he loved to where he was going to be working and where he was going to be doing it. Uh, and, I, and I felt, if I'm honest, that with HBO, it seemed a very natural fit when we arrived there. Uh, it, it seemed a kind of set up where they were all geared up to make exactly this kind of show. They had a whole team of people ready to put it into action. Uh, and so I, I was pretty happy with that. I mean, I don't mean I was unhappy at NBC Universal, because obviously I wasn't, because we made Downton with NBC Universal. But, uh, and I like Perlina very much, actually. But um, I, I felt for this show, HBO was probably a better platform. On a purely practical level, the the pilot here is 80 minutes, and you can understand why it is because you're introducing an ensemble that is in the dozens, possibly even into the low hundreds at a certain point. There are a lot of people in this show. How were you going to be able to pull that off on broadcast anyway, and how relieved were you when you realized that you could actually do an 80-minute first episode? Well, I was pretty relieved because the thing about a first episode is that you've got all these people to introduce in whom the public is not yet interested, which you have to remember, because later on in the show, if it works, they're saying, oh, I wonder what's happened to him and I wonder what's happened to her. But in the first episode, they're not saying any of that. They're just saying, well, here goes nothing, you know, and they turn it on. So you've got to introduce all these people, but you've also got to have enough story so that they're not just looking as an introduction. They've got to take an interest in something that's happening. And that's quite a lot to ask uh, of, you know, 50 minutes. So uh, I, I was relieved that we could have a longer first step. I mean, we did it uh, in Downton. We had a 90-minute opener for exactly the same reasons. Uh, and, you know, it worked for us in that. Whether it works for us in this it remains to be seen. Well, I'm, I'm curious because the sheer volume of characters here feels like it would be somewhere between daunting and utterly terrifying for a writer. And I, I wonder when you set up an initial pitch, do you always give yourself the challenge of, okay, two households, each with upstairs, downstairs, etc.? Or was there a smaller kernel that you started with and then suddenly it grew and grew and grew and suddenly you found yourself with this 100-person ensemble? Well, I, it's quite difficult to answer, really. I mean, if you're going to deal with people living life in the 1880s or 90s, whether you um, I mean, that life involved uh, of a certain kind of people. I mean, the, you know, rich society, whatever word one uses. That life involved two communities in every house. I mean, that's just how it was. And, uh, of course, the servant 
community is far larger in the Russell House, uh, where they have a sort of army going on below stairs, uh, rather than the Brook House, where it's a much more quantifiable number of people. But nevertheless, that double life, where you have two communities under one roof, is how that world worked. So if you're going to do it at all, you're talking about quite a lot of people. Uh, and they're very different people. And they have very different backgrounds. And they have very different lives. Uh, and I, I got interested in the Guild. Uh, I mean, I said, you know, the Gilded Age started uh, as me reading a lot of books. Uh, and then out of that, came the idea that maybe there was a TV show in this. I read, first of all, that book about Alva Vanderbilt and her daughter Consuelo, who was one of the first and most famous, really, of the dollar princesses who came over to Europe to save various limping noble houses. Uh, and she became the Duchess of Marlborough, a rather unsuccessful marriage, actually, but there were others that, that did better. But anyway, I read this book, and it sort of struck me as rather interesting, these two cultures. Uh, and then I started to read some more, and I realized that there were also two cultures in New York. There were the indigenous aristocracy from before, the Dutch, the English, the Scottish families from the descendants of the people who'd settled America. Uh, and then there was this extraordinary crowd of enormous fortunes that arrived after the end of the Civil War and turned up in town and built palaces up and down Fifth Avenue and expected, of course, to take over the show. But the other crowd didn't want to be taken over. So you have these two groups that are going to fight it out. And into this comes the figure of Mrs. Astor as the kind of referee who designs a new kind of society, a blend of these two groups, the old and the new, and she brings in some and she keeps out others, and she gradually fashions a new kind of social world, which was quite different from what was happening in Europe. And it was the first time, in a way, that America did not imitate old customs in Europe. They made something new happen. The American Renaissance of the Gilded Age was a new phenomenon. And really, uh, we didn't, of course, they didn't know it then. But I mean, it was the beginning of being modern rich, a different way of doing it. It wasn't all about peasants and duty and people sheltering in the castle from the invading hordes. It was a different way of doing it. And I, I rather enjoy, I mean, when we were filming, uh, you know, uh, those two billionaires decided to have a race in their rockets to get to the moon. Do you remember? And I, as I was reading about it in the paper, I thought, this is so Gilded Age. This is exactly what was happening on Fifth Avenue or, you know, uh, Vanderbilt building the biggest yacht in the world, you know, all of that stuff. Uh, and I loved that, actually. I really enjoyed it. I can't remember who won, but I don't think that's the point. Uh, it, it was such a Gilded Age extravaganza. Uh, and the more I read about it, the more I saw it, and then I was given two books of the palaces they built, many, alas, now rubble, because so many were knocked down to make 
apartments on Fifth Avenue. But you can still find some houses. I mean, the obvious one is the Frick collection. But in the, the next sort of layer down, if you walk up into the 70s and 80s and 90s, you still find them and you find them in the cross streets and everything. It was an extraordinary time. And I love going, you know, when I'm in New York, going to things like the University Club, because you get such a clear picture. It was built by Stanford White, I suppose the main architectural star of the Gilded Age. Uh, and you get such a picture of how they saw themselves. They were building for a race of giants. They were saying, we are giants, and the rest of the world had better get used to it. And I loved that, rather. Uh, it sort of amused me and interested me and impressed me simultaneously, really. Well, several of the people who you just mentioned, from Mrs. Astor to Stanford White, are actually characters in this season. And I I'm curious when you decided that you would want to have as many recognizable and somewhat recognizable real names as characters within this world, in addition to the people who you got to fabricate on your own? Well, you have to be quite careful, or I have to be, because I feel when you take real people, you can't make things happen that didn't happen. You can't make them do things they didn't do. So that limits you. I mean, that's why the main characters, the principal two families who are fighting it out are all fictional, because then you can take incidents from any real life, you can events that happen, and you fictionalize them and you put them into their lives. And that's, that's fine. You can do that as much as you like. But you can't do that with real people. So uh, the only story that Mrs. Astor has, for example, is something that really happened to her. Uh, because then I know if someone says, but did this really happen? I can say, yes, it did. Uh, and and I, I need that for real people. Uh, so, so what I do is I use them to glimpse, really. We glimpse Stanford White. We don't get too involved with him. Not, of course, that his life was without incident, not least the end of it, but it remains to be seen if we get that far. But um, uh, uh, with Mrs. Asterisk, I say her only story, which occurs uh, in the sort of last three episodes of the first season, first, he said optimistically, um, uh, occurs at the end, uh, did actually happen to her. And so I feel safe in that. But for the most part, we see fictional people. They run into people. They see Jay Gould. They see, you know, um, uh, whoever. Who was the banker with the big nose? J.P. Morgan. Uh, an enormous nose, actually, if you see any pictures of him. Uh, but uh, you glimpse him. You don't really get involved with him. You get involved, I hope, with the characters. One thing that I believe you initially discussed was that the Gilded Age, you, you saw this as a prequel of sorts to Downton, um, you know, with the potential to be connected occasionally, if not always. On the surface, at least from the pilot, that seems not to be the case. Is that Did something change along the way? 
Yes, you say I was in discussions. I was only in discussions because other people kept asking me about it. Uh, I never saw the series as connected because Gilded Age starts 30 years before Downton. So none of the younger characters would have been born and the older ones would have been 30 years younger. I mean, I'm not saying I absolutely would never uh, have a character from Downton. I think it might be quite fun at some point. But I think they're two completely separate shows. I've seen it listed as the Downton prequel, but I suspect this is a selling device to try and get some people to watch it. That's what I, I believe. Uh, it certainly never came from me. But, you know, um, I mean, the world, I mean, I quite like the idea that people are aware that the world happens all over the world, as opposed to just in one place. But I don't see them as connected, because I think the thing about Downton was it was really about the aristocracy in decline. The First World War changed the rules of the game. The second would complete that change. Uh, and the aristocracy was losing its grip because of economic changes, taxes, income tax, and so on. Uh, it was losing its grip on, a, on public affairs that it had had earlier in the 19th century. Whereas the Gilded Age is about the American rich coming into their own. I mean, this was their moment of glory. It wasn't a moment of decline. Uh, the only thing I would say is that it was the Gilded Age. It wasn't the golden age. Uh, and the emphasis is all on appearance. Everything is appearance. And, and it led them into expenditure. I mean, there is a kind of similar period, actually, in, in uh, England or Europe, I would say, of the kind of middle 18th century, where people were led into similar displays that, that could... Uh, leave them ruined and undermine them because the importance of putting on a show uh, was much greater than the consideration of how on earth you were going to pay for it. Uh, and that, of course, got them into a certain amount of trouble, which it did with characters in the Gilded Age, because the emphasis was very much on living in these palaces, going to Newport for the summer, going to Europe after Newport was finished, and so on and so forth. Uh, and the temptation is always to go on with a way of life you're used to when you can no longer afford it. And that is something that people have found tough down the ages, really. Um, so I suppose there are those parallels, but, but it's not a link I ever really saw. You mentioned the billionaire space race, and I think that there was a definite split on how people viewed that. There were the people who saw it as being wonderfully adventurous and romantic, and then there were the people who saw it as a representation of how completely out of touch these people were with actual human beings. I'm curious if you feel as if the conversation around class and economic inequalities has changed in maybe the past 10 and 15 or 15 years and and how you have to address something like that as a writer when you're dealing with these stories of the ultra wealthy yes i mean i think the whole phenomenon of virtue signaling is comparatively 
reason that uh, no celebrity now is without a cause. Everyone is sobbing over something. And, and that has been a phenomenon, not even within my lifetime, but within my sort of last 20, 30 years, that, that, that everyone has to persuade you that what they're really concerned about is some sometimes quite worthy cause that you're quite interested in, but they are used as badges. Uh, and I think that is a modern phenomenon. Um, and, I, and when you're writing about period people, I don't think you can really have them, uh, you know, in tears about the climate, because for them, it wasn't the same. I mean, actually, uh, you know, most of the animals were not in danger then. Most areas were not in danger then. So, uh, it, you know, they just got on and shot buffalo and things that people don't approve of now. But in those days, there was no shortage of buffalo. So, uh, it, you know, it was a different moral position. And I don't really agree with period dramas that try to give modern character concerns to, to people in that time. I think it's false. I think you have to try and give them concerns that they might have had. Uh, but of course, that doesn't tie your hands because, you know, most of the concerns people have, you know, who am I in love with? Am I rich enough? What the hell are my children doing with their lives? These are things people have been going through since 1066. So uh, you're not limited in those areas. But I think you have to watch it a bit, trying to make them modern. I mean, I, the most interesting area of that really is, is for me, I suppose, is women, because women have always been, not all women, but there have always been strong and ambitious women trying to deal with the different limitations that their society was throwing at them. Uh, and the smart ones uh, found ways around those limitations and, and, and made a way through so they could get things done that interested them uh, and were worth achieving. Uh, I mean, not all of them, and some of them were defeated, but, but nevertheless, there were women authors, women pulling strings politically, women doing it, but they had to do it in a different way. They had, if they wanted to stay inside society and not simply be rebels outside, then they had to manoeuvre. And they had to be pretty smart, actually, to get what they wanted without losing their position. That's a situation I always find interesting to write about. Uh, and, you know, and I usually deal with that on some level or other uh, in whatever I'm doing. And you also have the opportunity here to attack race in a way that it took Downton Abbey several seasons to get into. When you were in your research, had you known about the African-American enclave in Brooklyn? When did you discover that? And when did you decide you wanted that to be a thing that you could actually push to the forefront here? Yes, I, I mean, I think from very early on, I was looking for uh, a black narrative that would be useful within the story and believable within all these characters, because I didn't feel you could write a show that was 
set 14 years after the end of slavery in the South and have no reference at all to this whole part of the community that was going through the most extraordinary changes uh, and developments. That didn't seem to me real. Uh, and then, uh, you know, and I was thinking, maybe I can do this, maybe I can do that. Uh, and then I read this book, um, Black Gotham, by Carla Peterson, which was really uh, her researching her own ancestors, her own family uh, in this period. Uh, and I had never known, I was reading about this uh, group, this settled uh, bourgeoisie, black bourgeoisie in New York in the second half of the 19th century, uh, where they'd had uh, various good business uh, opportunities. And, and one of the uh, things they did, and her family did, actually, was they had a chain of drugstores, uh, and, uh, and they ran this. Show. And as I was reading it, I was aware that I had never really known about this. I hadn't known there was a settled and prosperous black bourgeoisie in uh, in New York, in America, really, if I'm honest. Uh, and this was a discovery for me. I was so used to dealing with uh, the freedom of the slaves, the fighting of the Civil War, all of this stuff. Uh, and the idea that there was this quite sizable community in the North had passed me by. And as I read this book, I thought, well, these are the people for my show, because these can believably be part of the show I'm writing. And so that was a big discovery for me, uh, and a welcome one. And I also feel, um, I mean, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, probably not. But I also feel that uh, for the particularly the young black community, uh, I want them to see uh, black char characters, African Americans, whether being successful, living prosperous lives, being a, a major part of the community, and not as so often in drama, being being persecuted and being victims and being sat upon uh, and everything being terrible. I think this is a very negative thing to grow up with. And that's why I'm a big admirer of black sportsmen and um, entertainers and people doing positive. I mean, this is all less than it used to be because now you get senior politicians and producers and businessmen and the whole thing is being, is moving towards what it should be. But, uh, you know, if I, uh, in my tiny way, can promote that concept, uh, then I'm glad. And, you know, I think it's worth doing. You know, at the same time, were there things in your research on this period and this location that made you want to address New York City's gay underground scene from the beginning? Well, I'm always very interested uh, in the business of being gay uh, in the past because it was very, very hard. And this is a sizable minority, uh, and there is absolutely no reason why the percentage minority was not pretty similar since the dawn of time. Uh, 
And so for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, a great many men and women have been obliged to hide their sexuality and in many, most cases, essentially live a lie if they are to remain part of what's going on in their own era. I mean, of course, you get very rare instances of where people are not prepared to make that compromise and they come out, as we would say, but they would not, and they live in public, the ladies of Langothlan or, or whatever. But, you know, this is a, an extraordinary bravery and also requires people who are prepared to disconnect themselves from what is going on in their own society. And most people don't want to do that. They want to be part of their own society. And they want to do things that people are doing. And so they have to fabricate this kind of pseudo-life uh, and hope they will get away with it. Now, actually, the pressure of that, the pressure where you know, you have one drink too many, you're tired, you're not thinking, and you give yourself away, and the whole edifice comes crashing down. You're living with this day in, day out. And uh, that seems to me a an extraordinary tension. And of course, now we're told King William III was gay or so-and-so was gay or whatever was gay. But, you know, and maybe that's true and, you know, good luck to them. I hope they managed to have some kind of life. But it does seem to me tremendously dramatic, tremendously emotional, tremendously hard for people to live like that, which, of course, you know, is always rather interesting to dramatize uh, and write about uh, and to show people having to make these lives. I mean, uh, in Thomas the Gay Footman in Downton, he's quite brave, actually. He doesn't tell people he's gay, but he doesn't make a false life. He refuses to make a false life. He lives a kind of non-life, and that's, that's the option. But others, you know, they do make false lives, and they find wives and husbands, or they joke, you know, they sort of josh along with their friends, and they pretend they're part of the whole thing, and isn't it all merry? Uh, and... They lived like that their whole lives long. And I suppose, yes, I, I, I feel a great sympathy for them. Uh, and I feel they're worth celebrating, really. As we move towards wrapping up, PBS probably would have been happy to have Downton Abbey go forever. But you felt like that story had had run its course in the way you were telling it. But the first movie was a big hit. The second one is coming out this year. At this point, do you see that as being a world that you're both interested in and maybe eager to revisit every few years? Or is it kind of a, a case by case when I have a story, I'll do it, but it could be done after this second movie, maybe? Well, 
you know, I've said goodbye to these characters more times than I can number. I mean, I thought the fifth series was the last, then the sixth series was the last, then the movie was the end. Now there's a second movie. I don't know. I, I mean, we we came to an end, really, because the actors wanted to move on. And all of these younger actors, you know, they'd come into it mostly unknown. Uh, for some of them, it was their first TV job, you know. Uh, and uh, and now they're, they're famous all over the world and everyone tells them this and they want to move on. They want to see, well, if I have got this fame, uh, does it mean it's going to bring a career with it? Uh, and they wanted to find out. And, uh, you know, I don't blame them. That's what I would have felt if I'd been a young actor in a big hit. I think it was fun for them, actually. I do think they mainly enjoyed it, which was why they came back for the films, because they all get on and and uh, and you can do a film. You know, a film is whatever it is, 10 weeks or something, uh, and you can do that. Whereas the series took up most of the year. Uh, um, I, I, I think it was a natural development. And some of them, you know, Lily and, and uh, Michelle and Alan Leach. I mean, as you know, they've done so well. The kids. I love that, actually. I love the idea that we've opened the door for them to have interesting, long-lasting careers. I think that's great. But um, no, I mean, that was why we brought it to an end, really. Uh, and as long as people want to go on seeing the films, I'm sure we'll go on doing them. But, uh, you know, in showbiz, I mean, well, well, Wraiths and vagabonds, or whatever we're called legally, uh, and you you can't ever guess the future of a showbiz uh, event. You know, some things run forever; you don't know why. Others are marvelous, and nobody ever wants to see them again. Uh, you just, you know, you don't know. Uh, and each time, you hope for the best. I think all you can do is make a show that you like. And if other people like it too, then that's great. No, and we do like to wrap these interviews with the same question. What have you been watching and enjoying? Well, I've, you know, I love my series. I haven't got my series at the moment. I love Mad Men. I loved uh, West Wing. I loved... Uh, the good, uh, good wife. I love the good fight. I love Christine Baranski actually, and I'm thrilled she's in uh, my show. But um, uh, I want to go back to Succession because I watched the first series and thought it was absolutely marvelous. Not least because it went against one of my principal beliefs, which is that you have to have a couple of characters you like. And that proved <laughs> that I was quite wrong. And you don't have to have anyone you like uh, for the show to be very, very absorbing. Uh, but then uh, the trouble was the second series was on, uh, I think, here, Sky Atlantic. And I couldn't make it work uh, because I, you know, I can, I'm like everyone else with my computer of my age. With my computer, I can only do about two things. And then I have to ring up my son 
Why is there a blue light in the middle of the screen? What does this number mean? Why is it saying this? Uh, you've got an ad blocker, uh, you know, whatever it is. I can't do any of it. So I, I need him to come down for the weekend uh, and press buttons so that I can watch things I want to watch. But I'm going to go back to Succession, which I thought was terrific. Uh, but there are lots of things... Um, I love that series Scandal, actually. It got a bit outlandish by the end, uh, and, and there were some plots I had a little bit of credibility difficulty with. But for the first three series, I absolutely loved it. Who was it? The Washington, the, the lead lady. Kerry Washington. Who I, Kerry Washington. I was mad about her. Uh, and uh, I met her, actually, at some awards dinner, and we were so excited because she loved dancing and I loved scandal. So we were jumping up and down. But um, uh, no, I, I, I like that television of total immersion. Do you know what I mean? When you just, you absolutely want, can't get enough of it. Uh, I love that. Uh, and so I'm thrilled whenever I find it. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We appreciate it. No, no, I'm so pleased to be asked, really. Thank you very much. The Gilded Age premieres Monday, January 24th on HBO. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major launches are Single Drunk Female on Freeform, the first half of Ozark's final season, as we see it, the autism dramedy from Parenthood and Friday Night Lights creator Jason Kadams, Apple Bow's Servant, Billions Returns on Showtime, ABC launches Promised Land, and you just heard our interview about the Gilded Age. Dan, lots to choose from this week. What you got? Lots to choose from, and I haven't been able to get to a lot of it. Um, our colleague Angie Hahn seemed to like Single Drunk Female, so perhaps I will give that a check at some point. I like to like things. Um, I am a solid season behind on Billions, so I have no idea what these new run of episodes are like. Um Servant, I'm a solid season and a half behind on, but probably unlikely to catch up on that one. And I didn't get to ABC's Promised Land, but I will definitely be getting there this weekend, but too much TV. So among returning shows, I did get to the first half of the final season of Ozark. And I can say with some conviction that that show is exactly what it has been before. Uh, my relationship with Ozark has been a roller coastery one. I thought the first season was kind of mixed, but there were definitely things I liked about it, mostly Julia Garner. Uh, the second season I thought was pretty horrible. Just I would go so far as to say straight up bad, crappy TV for which it naturally received probably about seven or eight Emmys that year. Uh, <laughs> The third season I liked a little bit more and thought there actually were a lot of things that were good about it. And the fourth season is it's it's a mixed bag. The things about the show that work, I think, still work wonderfully. I do think Julia Gardner is giving one of the the great supporting performances on TV. I, I don't think that there's um, a lack of <laughs> appreciation for that performance. And therefore, you know, I'm not saying anything all that risky. I think she's won two Emmys for it now, and I would expect she will certainly be nominated again, perhaps win again, because she is wonderful. And and um, she's in um, Inventing Anna, the Shondaland show coming up in February. She is absolutely, at, you know, I would say her career is 
like peak TV, her her career continues to go upward and deservedly. She's fantastic. I also thought last season was really Laura Linney's best season of the show. The plot line involving her bipolar brother, I thought, gave Laura Linney a lot of things to do. And I thought that she exposed the darkness of that character in a lot of interesting ways without caring about keeping that character, quote unquote, likable. You know, it's the sort of it's the sort of anti-hero character that television is always happy to give men, but women aren't usually given those characters, though, certainly some exceptions. Shonda Rhimes, for example, likes to <laughs> likes to do plenty of those. So good on her. Uh, the fourth season is sort of along the same lines. I think Laura Linney honestly continues to get better and better. I think because Wendy Bird, her character, gets more and more complicated and interesting. I think they've totally lost track of Jason Bateman's character, Jason Bateman, who won a directing Emmy for no particular understandable reason for Ozark. Uh, but I, I don't think that character has any voice at all anymore, the Jason Bateman character, and they simply don't care and... I guess that's okay. He's presumably satisfied with what he gets to do. And so that's good. But yeah, I, I watched this show at this point for Laura Linney and Julia Gardner. The season itself, you know, it's bloated in the ways that Ozark always is. The first couple episodes are both over an hour and good God, both of them. You could cut 10 minutes from them so easily, but I just don't get the feeling Netflix cares. I think Netflix is happy to let them do whatever they want. They're happy to let them shoot in dark, unexposed rooms, all of that stuff. There are plot lines that work very well. And then there's an awful lot of time this season spent on the bird's son, Jonah, who is a character who I honestly forget constantly. He has some interesting things to do, but I don't know if he's the person I would be putting my interest and attention towards as the show is ending. So anyway, honestly, that was a lot of blathering to get to. Ozark is what it was. If you like Ozark, you will probably continue to. If you don't, now is not the time to get back into it. So as to newer shows, I, I really liked Amazon's As We See It, and I liked it more as I went along. It's it's a show that I, I thought was, you know, had had to play by certain formal and structural rules in its first couple episodes. And so the, the, the premise, for those who don't know, is basically it's three roommates who are all on the autism spectrum. They have a regular aide slash facilitator who's played by uh, Sosie Bacon. Yes, Kevin Bacon and Kira Sedgwick's daughter. And yes, she looks disturbingly like both of her parents. Uh as you can see in different shots in the season. But she's actually really, really good. She's been in a lot of things, and sometimes she's been good in things. She was she was really good in Mare of Easttown. Uh, she played the uh, drug-addicted daughter-in-law to Kate Winslet's character, if memory serves. Uh, but it was, you know, on a show like that, it was so very much a secondary or tertiary or quadrary or quintary. I don't know if I can go any further than that. But anyway... It was a background character. She was good. Here, she's in the foreground, and it's a very good central performance. But the show's hook is that the three main characters are played by three actors who are on the autism spectrum, uh, Rick Glassman, uh, Sue Ann Peen, and uh, Albert uh, Rutecki. And they're all great. 
they, they simply are. And it's not great in a this is a stunt way. It's not great in a here are three actors who are playing themselves way because they're not. I mean, Rick Glassman has been in a lot of other things. He was hilarious on Undateable. We've seen Rick Glassman as an actor. This is also Rick Glassman as an actor, not Rick Glassman playing himself. And I feel like that with all three of them and all three of their performances develop and mature as the season goes along, which is really all that you want a show to do. Um, Jason Cadams has had a couple duds in a row. Uh, there was Almost Family on Fox, which was just dismal. <laughs> it's my formal review. It, it, I mean, you're not a critic, but that is a fine review. That is that is an accurate and apt review. And uh, NBC's Rise is a show that I really did think by the end of its first season, it was actually a solid show. But it, Barry was, but it was a bad show in the first half. And I understand why people might not have wanted to stick with it after, say, five minutes. I mean, that show got derailed by a bad TCA panel. But I don't think that had anything to do with why, I mean, didn't have anything to do with why critics didn't like it, I don't think, honestly. And I don't think it had anything to do with why audiences didn't tune in. I think the bad TCA panel was reflective of the lack of consideration that some things got in the early going of the show and the show got better. But anyway, so, you know, I'm, I'm making, I'm insulting his last couple of shows. He is still Parenthood creator and uh, longtime Friday Night Lights showrunner Jason Cadams. And so anyone and to say nothing of, obviously, Relativity and all the episodes of my so-called life he wrote, et cetera, et cetera. So when he Roswell, is, he, yeah, the original. Roswell created the original Roswell. Exactly. When Jason Kadams is in gear, I don't know that there's anybody who is better at tear jerking and making it earned and a hundred percent, I was teary-eyed for about six episodes straight. I don't know that I ever got to a weeping mess like occasionally I did at the best moments of Friday Night Lights, but that's kind and of parenthood. a... And parenthood. But that's a personal preference kind of thing. It, did this show make me laugh? Yes. Did this show make me teary? Absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, I believe this is one that you devoured all of. Yes, in one sitting. Um, I'm also pretty open about my adoration of Jason Kadams. Um, I always say he, he he makes my favorite shows. I walk down the aisle to the theme song from Friday Night Lights at my wedding. Um, Parenthood is, you know, I, I hate moderating things. I hate doing things like that that make me feel nervous and terrified. And I did a Parenthood panel because how could I say no? And that was the first panel I ever got my guts together to go up and moderate. And, you know, as we see it is... It feels for me like a return to form for Jason Kadams. And I, I love the series. And, you know, for those who haven't been followed or haven't seen Parenthood yet, there is a character in Parenthood who has autism. That character was inspired by Jason Kadams' son, who is now of the same age as the characters and as we see it. So it's a deeply personal show for Kadams. And Dan, you really said it very well. You know, you laughed, you cry, you feel for these characters in different ways, and you really get a chance to see what life is like for someone who's not who's, for someone who is on the spectrum. You know, it's a different class of problems. And, uh, you know, honestly, it just it's a very grounded show. It's a very emotional show. It's, and, and it has its it, its funny moments, too, you know, but 
I, I loved it. And, you know, if you're a fan of Friday Night Lights, if you're a fan of Parenthood and these big, great character driven shows that are packed with emotion and feel good moments without trying to be manipulative, this is the show. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, big recommendation from the both of us for that. And then. But I'm not last- <laughs> I swear our listeners may know drink, that at this drink, point. Drink, drink, drink. Stop trying to give our listeners alcohol poisoning. They've done nothing. They've been only nice to you. (laughs) (laughs) And last and and not least uh, would be the Gilded Age. You just heard our chat with uh, Julian Fellows and uh, it premieres on Monday, I believe, on on HBO. And as you heard him say, there's been a very, very long development road (laughs) for this particular show. And I, I think it will I mean, on the most simple level, I do think it will immediately appeal to people who liked Downton Abbey. I think it is. I think that is a that is a simple description. I do not think it is as effectively plot driven as Downton Abbey. Downton Abbey established its stakes very, very quickly, very, very clearly, whether it was, oh, no, our heroes might lose the Abbey, uh, whether it was, oh, well, that relative we forgot about died in the Titanic, uh, or whether you go a couple episodes forward and it's the, oh, no, uh, Mary just screwed Mr. Pamuk to death. Uh, there were a lot of stakes that were established. Leslie's making a face as if she did not watch Downton Abbey and does not know that in episode three of Downton Abbey, Lady Mary uh, sexes a Turkish envoy to death. This happens. <laughs> yeah, I never I never watched Downton Abbey. It's a good show. I, well, by the end, it was not really all that good a show. But when it was humming in its first few seasons, I, I really dig that show. It's a, it's a show that does uh, soapiness in all of the right ways, where it's unapologetically plot driven and big things are happening at all times, but where it's also very, very clever uh, very smart, and the cast was wonderful. And so those are the things also that I would say work best about the Gilded Age, which, of course, moves the action over to New York City, 1880s, literally the Gilded Age, as it were. And if Downton Abbey was very clearly just an upstairs-downstairs story about both the the elite and the servants at a British manor house at the end of the empire, this is more about old money versus new money in New York City at this point in history and deciding what the differences are, deciding where the value is in each. Um, But in addition, the show has these two central families, one old money, one new money. And then they each have their own set of employees. So there's still the upstairs downstairs thing. The cast of this show is so big and there are so many people to be introduced to. Again, you heard Julian Fellows talk about it. The pilot was 80 minutes. It probably could have been two hours. And, and I probably wouldn't have been upset with that, honestly, other than the initial horror when I saw that it was two hours when I popped my screener in. Because I assure you, when I saw this screener was 80 minutes, I went to anyone I could find on social media. And mostly I complained to Alan Zeppenwall that he hadn't warned me. And he apologized. So that's all that I ever ask in this world is being apologized to. Uh, But yeah, so you got like 50 regular characters and then you got like 50 more characters who are coming in in various different guest capacities. And it's really kind of crazy. But more than anything, they're played by this all-star team of actors 
when I was writing my review, I was going through trying to see just how many of the actors had won or been nominated for Tonys. And the answer for nominations is almost everyone who's in this show has been nominated for a Tony at some point. But remarkably, almost everyone who's in this show has won a Tony. Like Carrie Coon is probably the main star of this show. And she's only been nominated for a Tony. And she's freaking Carrie Coon. And anyone who has not seen The Leftovers, dear Lord, you should see The Leftovers or her season of Fargo, etc. She's remarkable. And she only has an, a, a Tony nomination. Darn it. I mean, you know, she's married to Tracy Letts. He's got enough trophies. But still. So the cast, once you get beyond Carrie Coon, includes Christine Baranski, Cynthia Nixon, uh, Morgan Spector, and uh, Louisa Jacobson, who you will look at and go, hmm, she looks like she's the missing Gummer sister. The Gummers, of course, being Meryl Streep's daughter. And guess what? She is. She's just the one who has a different last name. Um, she's also very good, as the Gummers tend to be. But you keep watching and the number of people who pop up in this show who are theater royalty it's in the dozens, whether it's Audra McDonald, the most decorated actress of hers or any generation, um, Kelly O'Hara, Donna Murphy, uh, Michael Cerveras, Nathan Lane pops up doing kind of a Colonel Sanders as a social media influencer in, uh, thing. You you have to see it to understand what's happening. It's it's a little corny, but also kind of funny to watch. Uh, Katie Finneran, who's Broadway royalty. One person after another pops up and you're like, my God, this cast keeps getting better. And so I stopped worrying at a certain point whether I was deeply involved in the plot machinations because I was only kind of loosely involved. And I just liked watching one person after another pop up on screen and go, my God, I can't believe they got that person to do this role. Can't believe they got that person. And a lot of it probably has to do with the fact that production on this began when Broadway was still shut down. I, you know, I can almost imagine that uh, Julian Fells was working his way down kind of a, an a la carte list and just checking off names and being like, Ooh, can I get dot, dot, dot? Can I get Hades town star Patrick Page to come in for a walk on roll? Sure. Why not? Excellent. Come say, th say three lines in your ridiculous bass voice, Patrick Page. And he does. And there are just so many people like that. Um, I can imagine how it could easily find its way to get the soap proportions correct and become a really, really special show. For now, I think it's a good show with a ridiculously special cast. And so um, unlike Alan Sepinwall with me, I'm warning you all that the uh, premiere is 80 minutes. So settle yourself in. You know that it's a long premiere. Subsequent episodes, though, are normal cable drama length. They're 50 minutes. I think one might even be 46 or something. So they're all normal. 80 minutes for the pilot. Splendid cast. Maybe not as splendid storytelling. Maybe it'll get better. But anyway, if you like Downton Abbey, I'm pretty confident you'll like The Gilded Age. And for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. That feels like a good place for us to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We'll be back next week with special guest Bridget Everett to discuss her HBO comedy, Somebody Somewhere. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It does help spread the word of mouth. 
we're always happy to chat with you guys on Twitter. So come let us know what works, what didn't work. Again, we are we are as always still looking uh, for feedback on sort of experiments like our bonus episode from last weekend, the showrunner spotlight standalone. So drop by, let us know if that worked for you. If you've got questions for future mailbag segments, and we are beginning to pile up a few of those, so thank you for that. You can email us at TV's top five at THR.com. That's TV's top five, the numeral five at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.